Hi, this is Robert Furrow, and welcome to TruthQuest Podcast. This is our Q&A where we look at questions through the lens of Scripture. Our desire is to know what God's Word says so we can know what to believe, rightly dividing the Word of God. We want to look at things through, as I said, the lens of Scripture to make sure we're believing what is correct. If we follow our heart or we follow how we feel, we can never be sure. But if we can back it up with the Word of God, then there's a power in knowing what that truth is. Now, if you have questions, you can ask them on the Bible, on Christian living. You can talk about nuances within the Christian life. Uh, the, The Bible gets very nuanced in its answers, and I absolutely love that. You can talk about apologetics. Now, at the end of our last session, Uh, We had a question that was asked about book recommendations, and I wanted to start with that again, but I just don't want to give you a list. I want to talk about the books that I want to recommend to you. So the first book that I have is by Lee Strobel. Lee Strobel was a journalist with the Chicago Tribune. Uh, His wife got saved, and he set out to disprove Christianity using his journalistic skills. But what he found as he began to interview and began to compile research was that there was much more evidence for Christianity than he ever thought. So he wrote a book called The Case for Faith. And this is one of the first books that I recommend that you read in order to get a good grounding in apologetics. Apologetics, being able to give a case, being able to give an answer for the hope that is within you, to defend the faith. The Bible says, be ready to do so. And this book helps you get your bearings together to be able to do that. I have a few more of his books on the list, but we'll talk about them as time goes on. The second one is Evidence That Demands a Verdict by Josh and Sean McDowell. Josh McDowell wrote this book a lot of years ago. Frank Turek, who is an apologist, uh, read this book in order to be saved. Uh, Sean McDowell, who is, who is now a uh, professor, and I forget what college he's at, um, but he went to his dad to rework the book uh, to be able to make sure it was more accurate and to add in some new aspects. So there's a new edition by Sean and Josh McDowell called Evidence That Demands a Verdict. It is very powerful and really good. Now, another book that I recommend today, uh, especially since you run into people who are um, into progressive Christianity, They'll question the Bible. They'll question uh, anything that the Old Testament said. Uh, They're really moving away from Christianity. And she does a great job in talking about how she was almost sucked into progressive Christianity, the challenges she came through, and what that led her to. And she covers all of these in a book called Another Gospel. That's Elisa Childers, Another Gospel. Now, there's another book that I read a few years ago, which was super inspiring to me. And I love biographies, and there's a lot of great biographies that are out there. But this one is A Passion for Soul, Souls about D.L. Moody. So, A Passion for Souls, and it's about D.L. Moody. And it is so inspiring. D.L. Moody was a man who, as a child, couldn't go to school who was illiterate as a young man, and God called and used as really a revivalist in the 1850s. He was also a chaplain for the Union in the Civil War. 
and um, and was used in the World Fair uh, for great revivals. And he also went over to England to learn more. His desire was to go to learn more, and God used him to start a revival in England. A Passion for Souls, it's a long read, but inspiring and can really help encourage you uh, to do the things that God's called you to do. There's another book by Paul Copan called um, Is God a Moral Monster? So a lot of attacks. Um, there's a lot of web pages. We've had a visitor here with us on our Q&A who's an atheist who's asked a few questions. I said, are you looking at websites to get this information? Because they're out there. So there are websites that will give atheists questions to ask Christians. And a lot of them are about the Old Testament. And so in this book, Is God a Moral Monster? He covers a lot of these questions that they raise on these different um these different web pages, these atheist web pages, uh, to give you um, to give you trouble, but it's he's going to give you a lot of really good information. It looks like a lengthy read when you get it, but it's not that long. It's easy to it's it's pretty easy to make it through. The next book is um, by uh, Paul. No, excuse me, um, by Craig Keener called Miracles, and it's it's again his easier read. He's got a two volume set if you want footnotes. But he goes over, and it is so moving. Um, literally, I was moved to tears in reading this book several times because the accounts that he goes through of people that were touched and healed are so incredible. And to know that God still does miracles today. Now, I don't believe that God does miracles in bunches today. I think that he used those as signs during the time of Moses, during the time of Elijah, during the time of Jesus and the apostles. But God does do miracles today, and um, this book documents those miracles. It's incredibly powerful. Um, <clears throat> Gary Habermas has a couple of books that would be great to read. He has evidence. He is the foremost scholar on the evidence for the resurrection, and um, he's got a lot of good different books that you can read on the resurrection, so you can just look those up. But he's also got one on near-death experiences that is really good. And this shows that there's something going on supernatural. He's not talking necessarily about the visions that they see, but the out-of-body experiences that they have and what they're able to see and then bring back once they are brought back to life. So someone who dies on the operating table, what they see in the waiting room. Uh, it's just, again, really powerful. Uh, Gary Habermas on near-death experiences. Um, more Lee Strobel books. He's got a case for miracles. He's got a case for creation. If you're talking to someone about evolution, this book is um, a decade old, maybe a little longer, and so it doesn't uh, encompass a lot of the new evidence that's out there. But even atheists today and, and those who believe in evolution are saying evolution as we have taught it cannot be true. This is the reason that a lot of evolutionists have gone to aliens to say that the planet was seeded because we are too complex. Darwin knew this. Darwin wrote in Origin of the Species, which by the way, look up the full title of that book sometime and you'll realize that it was messed up. It talks about the favored race and um, Hitler had read Darwin's book and was a Darwinist and it was a, a part of what a lot of what he did there. But A Case for Creation by Lee Strobel, if you want to get just basic information on how to fi talk, um, uh, like what you know what you're talking, or, or how to learn to talk 
knowing what you're talking about, about evolution, then that would be a great book for you to read. On Guard by William Lane Craig. He's talking about defending your faith. Um, Cold Case Christianity by J. Warner Wallace. J. Warner Wallace was a cold case detective. He brought those, those skills to Christianity, which is a cold case, the resurrection of Christ. And uh, he is really good at apologetics and defending the faith. Um, some other books. Um, there is God Will Use This for Good by Max Lucado which talks to those who may be struggling and going through difficulties. And Max Lucado, good author. Just anything that he writes is good. Um, Tactics by Craig Kokel. I've read this here recently. I've talked about it a lot. I like it. It teaches us how to be under control, to not get defensive, to not get argumentative, to not get upset, but how to have conversations with people even when they are accusatory towards us as Christians. Natasha Crane has a book called Keeping Your Kids on Your Side. So it's really good about how to train your kids when they're young about apologetics. There's cold case Christianity for kids as well uh, that could be really good. Uh, Frank Turek has a couple of books and I'm reading On Guard Now by William Lane Craig and I'm reading I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist by Frank Turek. Uh, Frank Turek has another book called Stealing from God. Um, and anything by these authors that I have suggested will be good books. Now, let me give you some suggestions on how to read them. Uh, if you have time to be able to sit down and give an hour, hour and a half to reading a book, then get them in the hard copy, or at least get one in the hard copy, highlight, underline, dog ear, just mark the book up. So when you go back, you can look through it and see what you found important in the future. It's a good way to review it later. Uh, doing, um, getting audiobooks, and almost all of these that I've said, I think all of them that I've said, are available on audiobooks. Um, there are a few other authors that I really like, but they're not available on audiobooks. Um, so that you can listen to when you're doing housework, when you're working on the yard, when you're, when you're driving, which is what I do. I, do, I listen to a lot of audiobooks while I'm driving. And all of these things help challenge me, help keep things fresh um, in, my, in my walk with Christ. Um, I, I like to read people oftentimes that don't believe the same thing that I believe. I like to read people um, from Answers in Genesis on the a young earth, and I like to read people like William Lake Craig on the old earth. Um, I even like to read people that believe in theistic evolution. I read a book years ago by DeSesh D'Souza who believes in theistic evolution. I don't read them because I want to know more about them and because I believe them. I read them because I want to know what their arguments are. I want to know what the validity is and I want to be able to speak about them intelligently. We can get stuck in our echo chamber reading only things that back up what we believe. Now, if you've got very little time to read, then I would suggest picking one of these books and reading them. But if you can expand the time reading and intaking books, you're going to be able to speak intelligently. And when you read someone who is on the opposite side, then you find that you're really able to give their case strongly. When I'm interacting with someone who doesn't believe what I believe, I like to understand their case clearly to know what the truths in it are and what they aren't. You're, you're able to give their position strongly. I believe that this is really important. Um, I like that... Um, uh, 
uh, Dr. Flowers, uh, Dr. Layton Flowers, uh, talks about when you're interacting with someone you disagree with, you want to build a steel man. You don't want to build a straw man to tear it down because everybody can see through that. But you want to build a steel man. And so, reading people that disagree with you, uh, even reading atheists, reading something like Dawkins, is going to be really helpful because you're going to see their arguments, be able to go in and look at the other side to be able to overcome these. So, um, that's a few recommendations that I have uh, for a few books to read. Uh, I think it's probably enough. Uh, Keith, if you could uh, make a list of these and put them in the description, uh, that would be great. I know it's a little bit more work for you. Sorry about that. Um, but later on, if you didn't quite get them as I'm talking about them, you can go to the description section of this and be able to get the books that are there. All right. So good to have you guys here with us. Good to have you joining us um, on this uh, Wednesday. Uh, tonight, we have a study out of Revelation chapter 17. We're going to be talking about mystery, Babylon, uh, the woman who rides the beast, the harlot um, that rides the beast. And uh, we're going to look, we're, we're not going to make a decision today on who we think she is. We're going to talk about what a lot of people have said and kind of go from there. All right. So thank you very much uh, for being here. Really appreciate it. Uh, we have a question from Psychman. Psychman, good to see you. Um, Psychman45 says, according to Jesus, Paul, um, uh, Israel is in full swing, E-T-A-L. So, I'm not sure what that is. Israel in full swing um, with a temple sacrifices near the beginning of the tribulation. How could the, trapture, uh, the rapture have happened when scarcely a Jew even lived there? Okay, so um, continuing our conversation, me and Psych Man have been having about the pre-wrath and my position of the pre-tribulation wrath. And the interesting thing is, Psych Man, they really are the closest, I think, of the positions. I believe that we are going to be taken out before the tribulation period. And the reason that I believe that is because I believe in the any moment return of Christ. And the early church, like in the Didache, they talked about Christ coming back at any moment. The early church phrased an Aramaic word that they would put into Greek writings, Maranatha, Jesus come quickly. They, they use that as a greeting, come quickly Lord Jesus. And as you read the New Testament authors, they believe that Jesus could come back at any moment. Now the reason that they did that was because the Bible, had, had Jesus had clearly taught I can come back at any moment, and if I can come back at any moment, then be ready uh, for me. Now, let me give you an example of this Maranatha. I want to just go through a few passages that talk about Jesus coming back at any moment. You can make these kind of arguments, psych man, on a lot of different levels. You could say Peter knew that he was going to get old. So how could he expect Jesus at any moment? Because Jesus said, when you're old, they're going to bind you and they're going to take you where you do not want to go. Um, you could say that um, when you, that they knew that the Jerusalem was going to be destroyed. When you see, when you see these things happen, flee. I think it's Luke 21 that talks about the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD and Matthew 24 that talks about it at the end of the world. But they both say to flee to the wilderness. So you could say, how could they be expecting Jesus at any time if they were supposed to flee to the wilderness? So that falls in this category of these kind of arguments. These kind of arguments didn't mean that Jesus didn't want the church to believe that he could, that you could return back at any moment. 
Also, the rebuilding of the temple, I mean, just to answer your argument, the rebuilding of the temple could happen really quick. Uh, today, buildings could be built really, really fast. And I'm not one that believes that you have to have the rapture and then the beginning of the tribulation period. I understand that pre-wrath believes that, but I don't necessarily believe that. But let me just show you a few verses that tell us, that teach that Jesus could come back at any moment. Uh, I'm gonna put these up on the screen for you. Out of my font got a little weird here. Oh, come on, don't do that to me. I wanna be able to show these scriptures. Uh, for some reason, it's not working. Let me mess around here a little bit. Mm, why isn't this coming up? Oh, I should have checked it beforehand. Every other one's working except for that one. All right, um, let me see. Let me just read you a few of these, all right? So, um, 1 Thessalonians 1, 9 and 10. For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you, and how we turned from God to idols to serve the living God, and to wait for his Son from heaven. So here in Thessalonica, they turn to the living God to wait from the Son from heaven. And you find this kind of lingo all over the New Testament. They were not waiting for the Antichrist. They were not waiting for the beginning of the tribulation period. If that was the case, they'd be, they would have been told to wait for that. But they were to wait for their Son from heaven. Who, and it goes on to say, who was going to save them from the wrath that was to come. James 5, 7 through 9 tells us to be patient and wait for the Lord like a farmer waits uh, for his crop. Philippians 5, I keep pressing my button here hoping that my scriptures uh, will come up. I hate to do too much because I think it might freeze. Philippians 4, 5 says, let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. So that's Philippians. So Paul's writing to the Philippian church telling them the Lord is at hand, that they would be ready for him to return back at any moment. Jesus said in Luke 12, 35 through 40, let your waist be girded and your lamps burning, and you yourselves be like men who wait for their master when he will return on the wedding, that when he comes and knocks, that he may open immediately. Blessed are our servants who master when he comes will find so watching. Assuredly, I say to you, that he will gird himself and he will sit down and eat and will come and serve them. And if he shall come to them in a second watch or come to them in third watch and find them so blessed are our servants. So the servants are to watch all the time. First watch, second watch, whatever it is. It goes on to say, but know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would have come, he would have watched and not allowed him to break into his house. And then he says this, therefore, you also be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect him. Now that's, this is in Matthew. So he's telling that to the entire church. Are there some that would know, like, like Peter, that he was going to grow old and that Jesus couldn't come back at that, at that time? Yes, but this is for the entire church, that generation after generation, we would be ready and there's no way to fight against this. Philippians 3.20 says, For our citizenship is in heaven, from which we eagerly wait for our Savior, Lord Jesus Christ. So we eagerly await for him uh, to come back from heaven. Let's see if I can find, um, I want to look at one particular one here. Um, let me see if I can uh, find, I think it's here. Yeah, this is 1 Thessalonians 5, 2, and 3. For you yourselves know perfectly well that the day of Lord comes as a thief in the night. The day of the Lord doesn't come when you expect it. It comes as a thief in the night. 
A thief doesn't come when you expect him, but as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman and they shall not escape. Now, all of these passages and more, because I could keep going, speak to us about being ready, looking to the Lord, that the Lord is coming, at, you know, that he's coming, he's coming at an hour we don't expect him, all of those things. Now, psych man, you believe in pre-wrath. More power to you. Maybe you're right. Maybe I'm wrong, and maybe you're right. But this is so, such a small um, part of what we believe the same. So that oftentimes, and this has happened to Christians over the years, we get stuck on something that we believe differently about somebody, and we feel like we have to persuade them. I don't have to persuade anybody. I'm not trying to persuade you. I'm just telling you why I believe what I believe. Even as a pastor, I don't preach my sermons trying to persuade people to believe how I believe. I'm teaching what I believe the Word of God says. And I believe that God's Word says Jesus could come back at any moment. And if that differs than what you believe as someone who believes in pre-wrath, then so be it. Just be confident in what you believe. And we'll have fellowship together. The Bible says be in one accord and have unity. And don't let that, don't let things like this come in between them. And so um, uh, I would, I'll, I'll continue to, to look and answer your questions as you want them, but as you ask them, but my goal is not to try to persuade anybody to believe the way that I believe. If you believe in post-trib, pre-trib, I have friends who are all millennialists. I know people who are post-millennialists that I have a fellowship with. That's so far away from the similarities that you and I believe with, but they're brothers in Christ. And it's important for us to have unity in Christ instead of always talking about those things that we disagree on, let's have fellowship in Christ on those things that we agree on. This is just a good lesson for us overall. Uh, you could focus on the differences, but real unity, real unity is easy when you everybody believes the same thing. But when you have differences, and you still have unity in Christ, that's something that is very powerful. And um, again, you want to know why I believe what I believe, I'll let you know. Um, but I'm not insecure about my position. I'll talk about it. I'll show you why. Um, but I just kind of feel like we're going to keep on getting questions and go round and round here because I'm not trying to convince you. Um, very rarely, debates in, in debates very rarely convince anybody. Um, or debates, debate, debates very rarely convince your opponent. Debates, debates are for the hearers so that they can make decisions on what's taking place there. All right, psych man. So I appreciate your questions. I understand your position. All right. Um, Manny has a question for us. Manny, good to see you. Um, Manny says, question, how do we reconcile God's justice and wrath with his, um, with his patience. Seems America is worse than Sodom and Gomorrah with um, killing children in the womb and deemed child and, yeah, then trial uh, trafficking and evil trans, um, yeah, yeah, the trans surgery. Um, it certainly seems, Manny, in culture, that 
in all three of these, it's, it's so true. Um, we've had this movie that's out that's putting a focus on human trafficking and how bad it is, and it is shocking, and it should shock us. Um, we have defunded the police, and we don't have enough police in places, and this was happening kind of before COVID, to be able to do what they need to do, to be able to stop this from happening. And so it's sad and it's tragic. Um, I, I, I make regular arguments. Um, my, I often talk about that in every state in the United States. If you, if you kill a woman who is pregnant, you're brought up on two homicides, two murder charges. So our government, every state, recognizes a child in the womb as being human. Because you can't bring someone on a murder charge unless they're human. And then states give the right to be able to take the life of that child up until the time, some states, up until the time that child's born. Such hypocrisy and such evil. So, um, remember, God gave the Canaanites, Manny, 400 years to repent. So God gives people time to repent and change. And I hope that America does repent and change. But to me, it seems, you know, tonight in our study, we're talking about Revelation 17 and we're looking at the woman who, the, the woman who rides the beast, the, 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 um, the harlot of Babylon. And I think that she is the religion of culture in the last days. Now, I'm not going to talk a lot about this tonight, um, but I don't believe it's America or New York or a lot of the other things that people believe this woman that rides the beast is. I think it's the things we're talking about here. I think that's why she, she persecutes the blood of the saints. I, I think it's where our culture's heading, which is to a pretty evil place. And um, yeah, I do think that America's gonna be judged. I think America's, America may be judged before we get to the last day's judgment. Some see America as the daughter of Babylon that's mentioned in the Old Testament. Um, but I, um, but remember too, um, I, you said America here. This isn't just America. This is all around the world. The, the, our, our world is rapidly moving towards these more evil things. And the, the Bible tells us the world's going to get worse and worse until the return of Jesus. And we're seeing those things happen rapidly. It's as if COVID just sped everything up and made everything happen happen rapidly and, and heading quickly towards a one world government. I see it as Manny as being a real move towards the end of the world. All right. So um, we have a question. Oh, we just did. That's what we just did. All right. So thank you, Manny. I appreciate uh, your question. If you are joining us for the first time here, really glad to have you. If you have a question, then you can write the word question down. Then you can reread your question a couple of times. Make sure it makes sense. Add any references. I don't think I could put the references up today. I can't because it's not working for some reason. Let me just see if I can. Let me just mess around with this a little bit. I hope that things, so if things go black, I'll try to get it back. Things did go black. I don't know why. All right, so anyway, 
I'm gonna have to, I'm gonna have to unplug and plug some things in and I know that that will really mess this up to be able to get my scriptures up. So I'm just gonna have to read them to you today and we'll get them up later. So uh, we have a question from Jari. Jari, good to see you, good to have you here. Jari says, scripture says angels are creatures created to worship. Okay. Angels are creatures created to worship. I'm trying to think of where that scripture is, Jari. Um, all right, if you can find that reference, then put it in as a follow-up, all right? If we are humans are more than creatures, why did God make us lower than the angels? Um, Hierarchy-wise and literal, thanks. <clears throat> okay. So, I have no doubt that angels do worship. I'm just wondering about the, the this phrase, created to worship. But we are made lower than the angels, Jari. So, the, yes, that's true. Um, angels are stronger. They were created first. They um, are in the spiritual realm. Uh, they had choice like we did. Some of them chose to fall. And the Bible says that Jesus became a little lower than the angels, which is like us. Now, here's the biggest thing that I think about this. I think about the way that God chose Jacob, the secondborn, to rule over Esau, the firstborn. And how God chose the younger of Joseph's sons to be over the older. And how often we see that in the Bible. The first is last and the last is first. And how God chose to take mankind who is given dominion over the earth and is lower than the angels to preach the gospel and angels to support them who are, who are above us. Now, I don't know if I know all the ways that angels are above us or if we understand, Jari, all the ways that angels are above us, but I think it's amazing. And I, th there's no way to answer um yeah, we are, we are lower than the angels. So there's no way to answer, well, why would God do something? I, I don't know why God would do such a thing. But I do love the fact that we have been given the gospel to be able to preach and that angels minister to us that we, as we go out and do that work and they partner together with us doing the work that God's called us to do. And I just think that's absolutely, I think that's absolutely amazing. And I think it's also amazing that Jesus became a little Lord of the angels and he became a human, humbled himself even to the death of the cross that you and I could have eternal life. All right, so thank you very much for your question. I appreciate that. Um, we have a question from Empress Kimberly. Hi, how are you? She says, um, Ecclesiastes 1, 17 and 18. I'm agreeing with this right now. Too many opinions have brought confusion and grief to me trying to figure out the truth, your thoughts. Well, let me take a look at it. Hopefully I can help you out. Um, well, we'll talk a little bit about the book of Ecclesiastes and how it's, how it's written. And I think as I'm taking time to find this here, let me just take a couple moments to find, there it is, Ecclesiastes 1, 17 and 18. All right. So the book of Ecclesiastes is a, it's a wisdom book or a literature book. It's, it's written to make a statement through certain things. 
So when Ecclesiastes says, the dead don't, don't understand, the dead don't know you, it's, it's not saying the dead aren't going to know anything afterwards. It's saying the dead can't be alive like we are and know you. And we're all going to death. It's, it just uses statements that it's making its main point, which is serve God while you're young. And everything here is vanity. You put all your into what's going on here on this earth. Everything is vanity. And so you've got to read it differently. It's like reading the Psalms. It's like reading the book of Job. There are things that are going to be said that you've got to go back and say, there's some artistic license that is being taken here because of the genre of writing that it's in. You would not read a poem um, written by whoever. I can't think of any, any writers now. Um, you wouldn't read it as if you were reading a letter from your mom. Unless your mom was very creative when she wrote. Um, uh, you, read it, you read it differently and you understand that. And so it is with the different genres of writing in the Bible. They're not all the same. And Ecclesiastes is different. Now, I said all that before I even read the text. So let me go ahead and look at the text here. And I'll go ahead and read it. I can still see your question, Kimberly. All right. So it says, um, I am communed with my heart again. This is Ecclesiastes 1. I'll go to 17. Um, and I set, my heart, I set my heart to know wisdom. And to know madness and folly. I perceive that this is also grasping for the wind. So Solomon saying, I set my heart to, to search after wisdom to see if I could find fulfillment there, to know madness. It's kind of the cra being crazy, right? Folly, foolishness. I perceive that they are all grasping after the wind. Now, meaning they all don't fulfill anything. Wisdom, knowing madness, folly, they're all grasping after the wind. For in much wisdom is grief, and he who increases knowledge increases sorrows. And so your question on this is, I agree, I agree with this right now. Too many opinions have brought confusion and grief to me in trying to figure out the truth. Your thoughts? Yeah, I agree with this. I mean, I when when I'm studying the Word of God, even though you've got to look at things in the in the genre that in which they were written. My ultimate authority is the word of God over anything that I believe, any, anything that I feel. Doesn't mean I might not struggle with what the Bible says, but it means that I believe it. And so with much wisdom is much grief. With an increased knowledge is increased sorrow. Hey, the more we know about the world and the way the world is going, the things of the world, the more grief and sorrow that we have. Jesus was a man of sorrow acquainted with grief. Think about how much knowledge he had. Think about all the things that he knew. So we live in a, in, we live in a world that is living for the moment and living for instant gratification. That's what our world is all about. That's what it's, what it's, what it's living for. And sitting back and going through a time of difficulty is very hard for us. And gaining knowledge, wisdom and knowledge can increase sorrow. Um, knowledge can increase pride as well, right? With much knowledge, there's pride. And so, yeah, I think, um, I think it's true. So you think, well, why, why should we increase our knowledge then? Why should we increase our wisdom? Because, uh, because the wisdom protects us, the knowledge protects us. 
but a lot of times it shows us that there are struggles and hardships um, that are on their way. But yeah, I encourage you, Kimberly, as you're reading through the Word of God, your real goal is to find out what it's saying, why is it saying what it's saying, the way it's saying, because God's truth, the way the Bible teaches things, God's Word is inerrant in the truth that it teaches. We might have a misunderstanding of it, but God's Word is inerrant in the things that it teaches. So we have another question from Sally, and it is good to see you guys here with us today. If you're visiting for the first time, really glad to see you here. Uh, if you have a question, write the word question or put a Q or a question mark in front of your question so I can identify it in the, um, in the comment section. And then write out your question, reread it a couple of times, make sure that it makes sense, and then put in any references that we can look at to be able to help that make sense. And uh, Kimberly, if I didn't quite get your question right, what you were asking, go ahead and ask a follow-up, all right? So Sally says, um, what would be a good book to give a new Christian? Please, Pastor Robert, um, they've come to the Lord from the New Age background. Ah, oh, wow. Um, I wonder if Melissa Doherty has, um, has written any books. Um, so on YouTube, there's a channel by Melissa Doherty, and she came out of the New Age. And a lot of her stuff on YouTube is absolutely fantastic. Um, Melissa Doherty, New Age Movement. So let me just let me check here and see if I can find if she's written anything. Um, a bunch of her YouTube stuff comes up. Um, yeah, I, um, I don't know that she has, I don't know that she has written a book, but she came out of the New Age movement and she talks about a lot of those things. Um, new Christian who came out of the New Age movement. Um, what would be a good book for them to read? Um, I'm, you know what, I'm going to come back to, um, A Case for Faith. It's the book that I recommend to most new believers when they come up and they say, what should I read? because it's gonna give you um, a good baseline to be able to defend the scriptures, to be able to defend what you believe. It talks about how you genuinely become a Christian, what a real Christian is. Uh, I th I'm just gonna come back to that. I think that would be one of the best books to give them. Um, uh, if I were to look at any, let me just take a look at the list of books that I had here today um, and see. Um, yeah, um, yeah, case for faith, I think, and then maybe a case for Christ after that um, would be a good book to get them to read. And you can get a case for faith as an audiobook, so that could be helpful for someone who's a new Christian. All right, so thank you very much. I appreciate that. All right, and uh, let's see. Uh, it's good to see you guys here. Wakaya uh, has a question says, um, Rakaia says, given the history and theories of Freemasons, okay, what is your opinion of their donating to the pediatric office in Tucson? To the, yeah, pediatric office in Tucson. My son's doctor since birth closed her practice and works there. And I'm concerned. Yeah, I don't know a ton about Freemasons. 
Uh, I'm not even sure who would know a lot about them. I know a lot of the founding fathers of the United States were Freemasons. I know it's a secret society. And anytime you have a secret society, there can be problems, right? Um, donating to the pediatric office in Tucson. So is, um, is there strings connected? That would be one of my concerns. Uh, anybody, I think, who wants to come along and make the life of children better, it's a good thing. Um, are those that are involved in Freemasons, as Freemasons, Christians? Is it, is it a, I don't know, I, I just kind of picture them as being older people. I don't know enough about it. They might not be just older people. Um, I would, uh, yeah, I, I think I wouldn't be too concerned about it. You're, as you're kind of looking at things that are happening in the world and people in the world that give to different organizations, I don't have any problem with someone who's secular or has a different belief or someone who's Mormon or Jehovah Witness that would give to an organization to help out children or to help feed the hungry or whatever that might be. Um, I think that that's a good thing for them to do. I don't think it's a bad thing. And as long as there's not strings attached, so if I'm wrong and there's strings attached, let me know, Rakaya. all right? But I think um, being able to give to uh, something that is a positive thing is a good thing to do. And um, I wish I knew, I wish I knew who was, a, someone who was a Freemason, so I could talk to them a little bit more. And I probably do, I just don't know that they're Freemason. But I, I really would like to um, talk to them a little bit more about some of the things that they believe. So um, we have a follow-up by Kimberly. What does it mean to be ready for Jesus' return? Yeah, Jesus said, be ready for the Son of Man is coming at a time you don't expect him. So what does it mean to be ready? It's like the, the 10 virgins, that five didn't have oil in their lamp and five did. When the bridegroom came, they weren't ready. So being ready, uh, Kimberly, is to have a right standing with God to be following him in sincerity without hypocrisy. That you keep a short account with him, meaning that when you sin, you ask him to forgive you. And then you walk with him. You don't keep the sin unconfessed and unrepented. That you don't have any unconfessed or unrepented sin in your life. We know the Bible says if anyone says that they don't sin, that they are... Uh, liars, right? So we know we all sin and we know we need to confess it. We know we're struggling with things. Uh, and um, I remember as a young Christian thinking, I, I, I've, I've achieved, I've gotten all the, I got all the sin out of my life, only to learn that there's a whole lot of things that I was still struggling with and had to struggle with. But being ready means that you're in right standing with him. So that would be my question. If somebody said, am I ready for his return? I would say, are you in right standing with him? Do you have unconfessed, unrepented sin in your life? Do you have something going on? You know, are you involved sexually with your girlfriend? Are, are you um, taking advantage of someone? Is there something that you know is wrong stealing from your employer? You know it's wrong, but you're not, you haven't repented from it. 
and I would say, well, then, you know, why haven't you repented from? Why have you made it right? I'm not saying you're not a Christian. I just don't know. And it could be that you're not ready for his return. Maybe there would just be great shame at his return and he would take you. M maybe you wouldn't genuinely be saved. So being ready means you're saved, but, you're, but, but that you have a right, that you are in a right relationship with him. So Jesus said, and this is an interesting passage as well, Kimberly. Jesus said, blessed is the servant who when the master comes, finds him watching. So when Jesus returns and a person's looking for Jesus, that person's blessed. Why? Because when you're looking for Jesus, you're making sure things are right. If you're saying, I'm looking for his return, I'm expecting him to return tomorrow, and I'm looking for his return, blessed are you when the master comes, finds him watching. And so when we are watching, there's a blessing uh, that comes with it. So I hope, I hope that that is helpful, Kimberly. All right, let's see um, what other questions we have. Um, Raquia says, um, let's see, in Jeremiah 25, 20, 17 through 26, so I took the cup of anger of the Lord and made all the nations drink from it. How did he fulfill this task from God? Physical, parabolic, despite historical records. So, um, Rakaia, I'm, I'm going to go to Jeremiah here. And like I said, I wish I could pull it up on the screen today, but I can't for whatever reason. But um, Jeremiah 2517, um, oftentimes the prophets, and this is true about Ezekiel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Zechariah, Joel, they talk about current events in their lives. But then they bounce off that to talk about the end of the age and the end of the world. They become, it becomes prophetic for what God's going to do in the day of the Lord. And so when God says, so I took the cup of anger of the Lord and made all the nations drink of it, I would think he's talking about the last days. No matter whatever the, the context of it is, the, and this is the way that prophecy works a lot of times, God will be speaking to the king of Babylon and then all of a sudden be talking about the devil or the king of Tyre and be talking about the devil or be talking about you know, a certain king and then suddenly throw in a prophecy. And it's the way that God does prophecy. And the Old Test, the New Testament helps us to understand that because when we read the New Testament, we see fulfilled prophecy in the New Testament. And when you go back and you look at it, you see that there was another context, but God was making a statement about the Messiah and a fulfillment in another context. And that's how we know. So it's not just saying, this is the way it looks like it's happening. We know because there's a lot of passages in the Old Test New Testament that have been fulfilled. And this is a great Bible study to do sometime. And you don't have to do the whole New Testament. You could, but just take Matthew. Go through and find the passages that are fulfilled. Go back to the Old Testament, find them, read them in context, and you start to get an idea of the way that the Middle East, remember, we're in America, we're, we're 2,000 years removed from Jeremiah, we're 2,500 years removed. We're in a different culture, we're in a different language. So we got a lot of things different. So when you begin to like read the Matthew and you look at a, a fulfilled prophecy, then you go back and you see how it was said. Look at Jesus riding his donkey into Jerusalem. Then go back and look at the setting for him riding that donkey into Jerusalem, the prophecies for it. Look at the prophecies of um, him being sold for 30 pieces of silver. 
then go back and look at the context for those prophecies, which were fulfilled exactly, but the context, and you start to get a better idea on how these cultures used prophecy out of certain things. So, and I'm going to guess that that's the case here with Jeremiah, but I'm ready yet. So let's get there and we'll look. Let me do this first. I'm going to go back here and I'm going to try to find the setting for this. All right. So um, judgments on the nations is the section for this. And verse 15 starts, For thus the Lord of God of Israel takes this wine cup of fury from my hand and cause all the nations to whom I will send it to drink and they will drink and stagger and go mad because the sword that I will send among them. So, this is the term all nations. And I would say, um, take the wine cup and give it to all nations. Yeah. So, I would say this is a prophecy to all nations. I would talk about the end. I think it would be the end of the age. Therefore, this is verse 27, which you brought up. Oh, you brought up verse 17. So, I was reading right there. Um, then I took the cup of the Lord's hand and I made all the nations drink to whom the Lord had sent me. Jerusalem and the cities of Judea, its kings and the princes, to make them a desolation, an astonishment, a hissing, and a curse, as in this day Pharaoh the king, his servants, his princes. Um, yeah, so I would have to go back and read it a little bit more to get all of the context that's in there. But I would say, yes, that it is, is there a way that this could be true in the days of Jeremiah. Let's go to 17. Then I took the cup of the Lord's hand and made all the nations drink whom the Lord had sent me. Okay, and the cup was verse 15, right? Verse, uh, For thus says the Lord God, Israel, take this cup, this wine cup from my hand and cause the nations that I send to drink and they will drink and stagger and go mad because of the sword that I will send them. Then I took the cup from the Lord's hand and made the nations drink to whom the Lord had sent me all the nations drink to whom the Lord had sent me. Okay, well, there's a qualifier. All right, and this is in verse 17, which you brought up, and made all the nations drink to whom the Lord sent me. In verse 15, it says, For thus says the Lord God, take this wine cup from, the, uh, from my hand and cause all the nations to whom I send you. All right, so there's a qualifier here. It's the ones that he sends them. So I took the cup of the Lord and made all the nations drink from it. How did you fulfill this task from God physically? Um, well, certainly they weren't going to, this isn't a cup that you're going to drink. So it is a metaphor. It is an analogy. And um, so um, then I took the cup from the Lord's hand and made all the nations drink it. Um, so I'm not sure. I've never, never thought of it in that way. As I'm reading this, I'm thinking of God telling him to do it, him doing it. I'm not sure how he did it. Um, did he go to them? Um, Jerusalem in the book of Jeremiah is a mess. Remember, Jeremiah is chosen by God to speak to Israel right before they're taken captivity into Babylon. And Jeremiah is the weeping, weeping prophet. No one believes him. Everybody believes that things are going to get better and better and things aren't going to get worse. But Israel has gotten incredibly wicked. And so the, um, this prophecy in verse 18, Jerusalem and the cities of Judea, its kings and princes, to make them a desolation, an astonishment, a hissing, and a curse as it was this day. 
uh, Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and his servants, and the princes, and all of his people. And so he's giving these prophecies around them, and, and they are, I think, to his day. And Israel's going to be taken captive by the Babylonians, and Jerusalem's going to be destroyed. And it is going to be a place of desolation until Nehemiah goes back and establishes the walls, and Ezra goes back and establishes the temple. All right, hopefully that's helpful, Require. If you have a follow-up question, I'd love to take it, if that hasn't been that helpful. All right. So Jari has a follow-up. Question follow-up, does that mean we shouldn't persuade people of other religions and non-religions to believe the way that we do? Thanks. So if you're going back to me saying that even as I'm teaching from the pulpit that I'm not trying to persuade people to believe like I believe. I'm trying to present the truth to them. And especially when it comes to doctrine, of what, you can believe one way, you can believe another way. I'm not trying to make people believe my way. I'm not trying to make them not believe their way. Um, but when it comes to non-believers, Jari, let me put this back up here for a moment. When it comes to non-believers, we are ambassadors as if we are imploring with people to be reconciled to God. We are the light of the world. We are the salt of the earth. But how much pressure do we put on them? The Bible says one man sows and another man waters and God gives the increase. So it's God that is increasing the kingdom of God. I'm just called to go out and do the work that God's called me to do, to live my life in such a way that people see Christ in me, the hope of glory. And when doors open up for me to share my faith, to be able to share my faith with them and hopefully to see them uh, come to Christ. But um, trying to persuade, mm, yeah, I mean, I think with non-believers, I am trying to persuade. When I'm talking to a believer that has a different doctrine than what I have on whatever, like if I'm talking to a Calvinist, I'm looking for ways to have a conversation with them because they love the Lord and I love the Lord, they're a believer and I'm a believer. And I don't want the only interaction that I have with that person to be Calvinism because we're just going to be constantly at odds with one another over something that we disbelieve. But I would rather us be in fellowship with one another and be in one accord rather than that. So I do think this is a slightly different question than we're talking about how to get along as brethren that believe something different and then how... But, but we, we can't run around trying to close the deal all the time like a like a used car salesman. What do I got to do to get you in Christ today? And don't show you need to receive Christ. We need to be wise and we need to, to, to pray that the Holy Spirit would open up doors and step through those doors and water and plant. So I think there are similarities, but they're certainly not exactly the same. Um, I, I'm telling you, I don't want to, I don't try to persuade people. I'm, I'm confident in what I believe. If someone shares something that makes me question it, I'm not afraid to change what I believe. I've changed what I believed about once saved, always saved from believing it was important to not important, but nevertheless, um, I've changed what I believed about it. And um, I'm not afraid to do that. And I'm, I'm, I'm not afraid to have someone share with me what they believe. All right. Um, so... Yeah, I, I do think that, hey, we're ambassadors. We're the light of the world. We're the salt of the earth. We're a city set on a hill. We're shining for Christ. And so we want to do that effectively to the people uh, that are around us.
So David Moore, David, are you asking me this question or are you asking someone else? Um, I don't feel like we will experience three and a half year tribulation before the rapture happens. Um, let me just go over and bring this question in. I talked about this a little bit. I think Jesus could come back at any moment, not in the middle of the tribulation period because he's coming at a time you don't expect him. In the middle of the tribulation period, you would be expecting him. Um, I, I think the first seal is the false, um, the, the Antichrist who brings a lot of evil with him. The second seal is war. The third seal is famine. The fourth seal is death. Jesus opens all of these. And so I see that as wrath and the wrath coming from him. And we're saved from the wrath that is to come. Now, again, that's me, right? But that's what I see. So I don't believe that I'll experience that. So um, I'm not sure you were even asking me that question. I'm just looking down through here um, as we're making our way down. All right. So if you are here with us for the first time, we're really glad to have you here. Hope that this has been a blessing. Um, so we have a question from Gloria. And Gloria, I'm not sure I understand your question. So we can talk to our people in the past. There are people that passed. All right, let me just... Let me think about this for a second. There is a way in what you're saying is very dangerous and there is a way in what you're saying that is important for those who are grieving. And I'm not sure the context of what you're asking this in so I'm just going to take a guess and answer it in a broad way. Um, first of all, no, I'm not sure that when someone passes that they can hear us. I kind of think they don't, although I don't know. Maybe God does allow them to, to kind of be with their, their family who's grieving their partying for a while. I kind of feel like they're going on. You know, the Bible says in Psalms, and they looked upon him and their faces were radiant. But I understand the deep depths of grief. So I was, um, in 2011, in September, my wife was diagnosed with lung cancer. From there, it just got worse. It went finally to stage four, which, which she already had stage four from the very beginning. The first treatment worked and removed all evidence of the cancer. And then by December of 2012, she passed. It was devastating to me, my daughter, my two sons, her mom, her sister. We're all devastated. Um, I found myself after 30 years of marriage being alone. And it was brutal. The grieving was brutal. Um, I did talk to her. I didn't know if she could hear me or not. Uh, her her last few days were not good. I, I wish I would have done more. That's part of the grieving process, I guess, is you always, you feel guilty. I wish I would have done more. If I could go back, I would. Um, to comfort her and to let her know how much she's loved. But I did talk to her, but I didn't have an expectation that she might be listening. I thought maybe... 
Now, as time went on, and, and I grieved pretty heavily for a year and a half, even a little bit longer than that, and, and things started to lighten up for me, and the way that I kind of knew I was going past grief was when I would think of Lisa, I would smile. For about a year and eight months, I would just be struck with sadness or anger when I would think of her angry that she died, angry at God, questioning God, angry at her because of some of the things that she had said and done during our marriage that I had bitterness about, um, which is a good reason to get rid of bitter, any bitterness at all, at all, so you don't hang on to that. And, um, but there, there were a couple of things that happened to me during that time that I think are very important. <clears throat> One, somehow in my grief, I had thought that I had somehow done this to her. And I'm not even sure what I was thinking, um, that maybe I could have been better at identifying things, that as the leader of the home, I might have been better to keep her from catching lung cancer I mean, she didn't smoke. There's no, there's no smoking in our home. I, I don't know what I thought. But I did remember having a dream where she was sitting next to me and she just looked at me and said, you're silly. Kind of in the way she would, you're silly. Like thinking that this is somehow your fault was silly. And seeing her in that, having that dream was helpful to me. I had another one where and this was, this is interesting. I had another one where I saw her in my dream and she was walking away and this, a psychiatrist could probably do a lot with this, but she was walking away and she was ignoring me and I was calling her name. I see her, I was a ways away from her. And she turned around, she looked at me and her face was lit up and she just turned around and went, walked and went around the corner. Now she took to saying before she died, I'll see you around the corner. So in that dream, I can understand why that happened. Now, I did her dad's funeral. Her dad died three months after her. And I did her dad's funeral, and I read out of Psalms where it says they looked upon him and their faces were radiant. And it brought back that dream, and it made me think that she was about the things of the world, of God, not about the things of this world anymore. So, I don't know if that is what you're asking. Now, there is necromancy and talking to the dead that is forbidden, and that is part of the New Age movement. And so, as I said, this could be very, it could be very wicked, or it could be something that you're dealing with in the midst of grief. Um, so, uh, thank you guys very much. It is past five o'clock. I am uh, late. I've got a service in about an hour. I'll be teaching in about an hour and 20 minutes. Uh, we have Revelation chapter 17, verses 1 through 6. We are beginning our study on Babylon. We'll be looking at Mystery Babylon. We're going to be making a, a list of 10 things that is unique about Mystery Babylon and um, that we're going to apply later on to who it could be. And uh, this, again, is something people get very opinionated about. They're very opinionated about who Mystery Babylon is. And um, we'll be talking about that tonight. I'm also going to talk about the book, The Two Babylons by Alexander Hispel, that was written in the 1850s. 
that said that the woman who rides the beast is the Catholic Church. I'll be talking about that some tonight as well. So I look forward to seeing you guys there. Um, it's 6 o'clock online, 6 o'clock at the East Campus, 7.15 at our West Campus. If you are in Tucson on the southwest uh, side of town, then that would be the best one for you to go to at 7.15, all right? So God bless you guys. Love you. Stay close to Jesus. Um, hey, I thank you for the question about the, the, the books. Um, they're so helpful for me to be reading and learning and growing. Um, and, um, but I got to get out of here, all right? So I am out. I will see you guys later on.